evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, empowering podcast on women. And I'm delighted to have Dr. Vicky O'Dwyer here with me. And Vicky is an amazing uh, obstetrician and gynecologist because she's a real leading light in, in women's um, gynecology and obstetric care. And she's really out there to educate women. And I really admire you for that, Vicky, because this is an area of medicine which is so important to all those women, but really, probably because women weren't in medicine too much until we all got into it. It wasn't really spoken about the way, the way you are doing. So I, I really like that. And we had your colleague Rona um, on, on to us with, with uh, did a lovely podcast for her in October. So Vicky was Rotunda's, um, she works in the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin. She, she's a dub, which is lovely. And she has huge interest in menopause, in, in menstrual problems, miscarriage, and really all things women. So Vicky, I'm going to hand it over to you. Can you enlighten us as to, you know, from college, why you, why you went into medicine and, and take it on from there, please? Thank you. Um, so I guess I chose medicine um, because my dad um, ended up needing a cardiac bypass graft when I was about 14. Um, and I just thought what the surgeon did for, for him and for us as a family was so fantastic. I thought, I want to be able to do that yes. um, for someone else's family. Yes. And that's what led me to do medicine. And I guess then it was when I was in um, UCD and I was training, we did rotations and my obstetrics one was in the National Maternity Hospital um, and I was instantly hooked. And when I did my first night on the labour ward, you know, to be part of an experience like that, you know, it was just so fantastic. And bringing a miracle into the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And like none of the women were sick. It was a life event. Um, and for the vast majority, it was very straightforward and it was wonderful and happy. Um, and I, I just thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. Yes, very good, very good. And I suppose uh, the what then the the fact that obstetrics gynecology is lovely that's a female in it because you understand it as well and you understand all the menstruation and the whole lot of it. But it, it is a long hours. The hours are very uh, strenuous, aren't they, Vicky? Is is that hard? I mean, a lot of women go into it, thankfully, but it, it's a tough career, isn't it? For all of yeah, the listening. Yeah. I think you know it took me. Oof, gosh, about. 14 years of training I would say because oh. you know it's not just your day-to-day -day job it's doing an MD doing a fellowship um oh. and I have three kids um oh. so I couldn't have done any of, of this without my wonderful husband Brian um oh, and my family like my mum and dad have been very involved with the kids and I've worked all over the country I worked in Limerick Galway Cork um and doing that sometimes with the family in tow and sometimes commuting and yes. trying to make that work it's very hard. And as you said, you need you need support and you have support. And I suppose it's lovely for women and men listening in that they've, they, they're all juggling. But to know that, that we're all doing that and it's not just them that are, are juggling. We all have to do it, don't we, Vicky? Well, someone told me that you can have two out of three things. You can have a family, a career or a hobby. <laughs> actually no. absolutely I was we were talking to Pat Divoli in another podcast and Pat was talking about, about the importance of journaling and we were saying Pat wait till you have children and you can see yeah. how much journaling you will do uh, just going back to labour because the, one of the things like how much have we improved Vicky in, in maternity care in Ireland because one of the things that comes across in with all the patients is that they still go through very long labors. And, and, you know, you sometimes, that was something, you know, I had a woman into me who had 13 pregnancies in, you know, she's now in her eighties, but she was telling me how she, some of her, her labors went on for three days. 
and the poor thing was, um, you know, back then she was out in, in the fields and often had to come down with her waters broken and how those women survived, I don't know. But you still hear of those long labours, Vicky. And is there anything we can do about that to improve, you know, the, the reduction of pain, I suppose, for women, really? And, and yeah. uh, um, I, I think we're seeing two different groups of women um, in terms of what they want from their maternity care now. Yes, so yeah. There's one group that wants everything natural, no intervention. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's another group that maybe want an elective cesarean section. Yes. Um, and there's probably fewer women in the middle, you know, that will go with the flow. Um, and I think, you know, giving women information is so important that they yes. can make the right choices for them and choose the model of care um, uh-huh. that they that they want and that works for them. Exactly, exactly. As so one of the things as a woman, Vicky, is that, you know, when you hear about women that have pelvic floor torn and so forth, you sort of think that that really is, is unnecessary. And I suppose more education on what they need to ask for and maybe more staffing levels as well to hold or help reduce that. What do you think? Yeah. Well, so I think our rate of third and fourth degree tears has decreased and Post. our rate would be much lower than the rate in the UK. And there's a thing Post. called the Peaches Bundle, which they brought in hmm. um, to reduce the rate. Um, so simple things like having, you know, hot compress on the perineum and labour, having two midwives there for delivery, if at all possible, Brilliant. Um, to try and re- reduce the need of those kind of tears. Um, but I suppose for your first secondary tears at episiotomies, for the vast majority of people, they heal fine and yes. not to be afraid of it, which I think a lot of women are. Yes. Um, totally understandably but that it does heal fine and for most people by six weeks it's fine but for some people it takes a bit longer the nerve healing can take longer and do they use anesthetic when they do those episiotomies do they so our epidural rate would be 80 percent in first time mums which is good because you don't want them to be in pain either you know exactly yeah it's lower in second third fourth um labors probably because they're so quick and there isn't exactly yes and some women choose not to have an epidural um but that definitely helps Um, absolutely then yes local anesthetic is absolutely used exactly good good yeah i suppose what we want to do is empower women to make their own decisions not feel that they've just set out and be super mums and do without pain control there's nothing wrong with having pain control um, you know, and, and certainly I think people don't realize how arduous the labor can be. It's almost like they're shocked yeah. at the amount of pain they go through if they do do natural and then they're shouting for epidural and it's a lot better when it's planned, as you know, Vicky. Well, I think it's, yeah. it's the biggest marathon you'll ever run. You know, it's, yeah. it's physically challenging. Yes. Uh, and I guess that's why being, you know, the, the fittest you can be going into pregnancy, okay. doing the hypnobirthing classes, your antenatal classes, bit of pregnancy yoga pilates all that gets you ready both mentally and physically for labor yes um, totally, totally. Look, for women having a cesarean section it's it's equally important to be informed and to do those things um, uh-huh. and that you know both are fine people often say we use the term did you have a normal delivery and i mean what delivery is normal you know I really, yes i really like that absolutely you're so right i mean cesarean section you've still gone through nine months of pregnancy mm-hmm. and uh, you've done a lot of research on cesarean section a lot of talks on it but one of the things that i hate is the connotation that you're too posh to push because a lot of women have cesarean sections for different reasons and they're all very valid reasons and as you said they've gone through the nine months of pregnancy and they're entitled to 
um, make a decision. There is a connotation that it's too posh to push and, and a lot of women are made feel guilty uh, that they're going for a section, whereas there's a lot of medical reasons for, for a section and women shouldn't be made feel that way. As you said, it's still it's still labour and they've, they still had to carry the baby for nine months. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, our cesarean section rate has gone up. It's kind of 35% nationally. Um, and some of that is medically in- indicated. And mm. some of it is a woman's choice. And, exactly. You know, if you're fully informed and you choose a cesarean section, then that's fine too. And I think so, yeah. A stigma around it. Um, yeah. And I think we're moving away from that paternalistic type of medicine to where, you know, we're working with the woman, we're working with the couple. Exactly. Um, and if they choose a cesarean section, that, that's okay too. It is, yeah. I think, the, Vicky, that's only happened in the last few years. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, it's only happened. I mean, a lot of women would indicate to me that they, they felt, um, you know, as if they were looked down upon when, if they, you know, by, by, by surrounding people, not by medics, uh, if they had a, a section. And there was a, said, and that needs to stop. As you said, it is a choice. Yeah, yeah. And I think as families have gotten smaller, um, you know, we'd, we used to have a lot of women who have a vaginal delivery having had one cesarean section. Yes. Um, and that's probably less popular now that family sizes are smaller. Um, and you'll have some people who have a really positive experience with the cesarean section who then choose a section the next time. And then you have other people who want to experience both. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the recovery can be better from a vaginal delivery, not always. Yes. Uh, and certainly if you have one vaginal delivery, the recovery, you reap the benefits the yes. more vaginal deliveries you have. Yes, of um, course. But but it, it's complex. It is. And one of the big things that I find, Vicky, is in endocrinology is to, to educate women to have support after the birth. And a lot of women get overtired trying to do all the night feeds themselves. Uh, some of them, while breastfeeding is admirable and brilliant and desirable, not everyone is cut out for it and not everyone is able for it. And I always say to women not to feel guilty if, if, if that's the case, because some of them go around feeling guilty that they've done harm. And I think we need to get rid of that. Of course, we're out promoting breastfeeding. But but having said that, there are a certain group that are not able to because they're overtired or they don't have the support. And I think that we have to get the message across. That's fine, too. You know, I, th- I think sometimes that's been lost, you know. Well, one of the one of the best bits of advice I got was from a friend of mine when I had my first baby. Yes. Breastfeeding. And she said to me, for the 10 p.m. feed, just let your husband do the feed. Wonderful. Um, so she said, whether, you know, it's a bottle of express milk, whether it's a bottle of formula for 10 p.m., he does okay. that. He gets to spend time with the baby. You get to sleep. You get a break. Um, okay. And like, it was such good advice. Absolutely, because you know I see women after postpartum, and they're they're just exhausted, and a lot of that leads to the postpartum hormone imbalance uh, that happens, and we see it all the time. Or thyroid problems afterwards. A lot of it is just their pituitary is exhausted because women just feel that they should do it all themselves, and they sort of feel they have to prove themselves as a super mom. And I suppose we're trying to educate them that you've done amazing carrying the baby for nine months and having this beautiful miracle, and you know don't feel that you have to continue to overperform. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think those, the first six weeks, three months are, are extremely hard. You're sleep deprived. And, you know, I always say to people, good friends bring food when they come and visit you to see the baby. <laughs> um, and, and not to be afraid to get the support from hubby or from partner or from family or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that, that's so true. I think that's been hard with COVID as well, that people haven't been able to get out there and, you know, go, you can go for a walk, but the the kind of support groups, you know, the postnatal um, mum groups, 
I think that got a bit lost and yes it did it did hard because there does come a point where you do want to get out of the house and you need some company and that sociability um that those groups provide that got a little bit lost during the pandemic and um like I'm I'm hoping things will turn a corner uh, oh totally totally and you've done a lot with the induction of labor you've done a lot of um research on that um tell me more Vicky about what what things have changed recently on that yeah, so that seems to be one that people are really interested in and it gets a lot of bad press. But, yeah. you know, certainly if it's not a first baby, induction is very straightforward generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what people worry about is, are the contractions more intense? Is the pain worse? Not always. Um, and there are good pain relief options there. Um, I think induction of labour is very important when it's medically indicated. Um, and... I guess it is, it, the rate is also going up. Like we were looking at our stats in the rotunda and I think it was 40% for first time mums looking at a month back during the summer, um, which is a very high rate, but mm. medically indicated. Absolutely. And then Vicky, the thing is that you don't want to let somebody go past their weeks either, because that's happened before. And obviously when you go past your gestational weeks, the percentage does begin to disintegrate and there is a higher instance of things going wrong. So, you know, it, it, you have to look at that factor too, don't you? It is, there, yeah. there's a medical reason why you induct as well, you know? Yeah. So I suppose we know the risk of stillbirth will go up after 42 weeks. Exactly. Yes. When we start the induction process, kind yeah. of between 41 and 41 and two or three yeah um, but for we're seeing more mums who are in their 40s now and actually the stillbirth risk for them goes up from the due date sure. yeah so they're offered induction from 39 weeks onwards um and the risk is actually highest for first-time mums in their 40s so mm. that's something that often comes up in pregnancy that we'd recommend you know delivery by the due date because the placenta just won't work as well as well eh? Exactly, exactly. And and your the baby is is it thirty eight weeks? They're they're it's fine. They're they're fully aren't they? That thirty eight weeks is the norm. Yeah. So after that is okay. Even as you know, we do see babies born even as early as thirty six weeks who are yes and go to the ward and feed and breathe independently. But yeah. I suppose in terms of induction, it does tend to be around the thirty eight week mark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Reasons, like high blood pressure or diabetes you know gestational yeah well it's all about preventing problems isn't it Vicky so uh, the uh, the big thing as you said is education and staffing levels need to be good to offer all uh, what you're talking about as well and that's something we need to to insist on and miscarriage is the other thing Vicky that's very troublesome it's 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 terrible. I mean, it's very common in first time um, getting pregnant, but, you know, it's only now with you talking about it and, you know, it, it, this generation really talking about it because in, in our mother's time, um, they got no help at all. And oftentimes they didn't even realize they were miscarrying. You know, there was there was no help whatsoever. But you've done a lot of work on this, Vicky. Yeah, I think there's been lots of very brave people who've shared their yes, brilliant yeah over the last year. Um, and it was like a, being one of them. Yeah, yeah, and there was a great paper in the Lancet that looked at care around miscarriage. And while we have clinics for recurrent miscarriages, and we offer early reassurance scans for women who've had a miscarriage who are then pregnant again, looking at I guess the supports that are available for women after one or two miscarriages because everyone will process that experience differently. You'll have some women who are very practical and say, look, this has happened and move on. And then there's others who experience profound grief um, and need more support. And I guess the perinatal mental health team in the hospital, um, the bereavement services that are available most maternity hospitals are a huge help. 
um, wow. as well as organizations like the Irish Miscarriage Association and Felicorn, um, they all provide great support for women. But I think the and person who's talking about it. Totally. And Diggy, what's the big reason for miscarriage, um, would, would you say, from your experience? So the vast majority of miscarriages are just the pregnancy hasn't formed correctly. It's uh-huh. a genetic chromosome it happen, issue that happens by chance. Uh-huh. So it's really important people know that it's not their fault. It's not something they yeah. did. You know, if they exactly. had that extra cup of coffee, like yes. that's not what causes it. And unfortunately, you can't prevent it. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things people worry about is if they have a miscarriage, will they ever get pregnant again? Will they ever have a baby that they take home with them at full term? And for the vast majority of women, the answer is yes. And having one miscarriage won't increase their risk the next time. So the risk is somewhere around the 20% mark if someone's in their 20s, 30s and going up to 30, 40% as we get into our 40s. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research now about progesterone deficiency. And you see a lot of women being put on progesterone pessaries for the first few weeks. Vicky, what's your take on that? Yeah, so there's been some really good studies looking at progesterone in early pregnancy for recurrent miscarriage and then for women who've had a miscarriage who have bleeding in early pregnancy. Mm. Um, progesterone is very safe. You know, it's, it's yes. the same as our hormones. We're just supplementing what's exactly. already there. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great and mm-hmm. probably using yes. more and more of it now. I think so. I think so. And it's well tolerated as well. And we, with it was the long labours, um, Vicky, the, the big thing is with the, like what is how long do the labors go on for for the first? What's the longest you've ever seen? Because we we've, we yeah. <laughs> so we talk about in the hospital labor as being when you're diagnosed in labor. So you've got regular painful contractions and you're two or three centimeters, depending on what the hospital has chosen. Mm-hmm. That is the start of your labor, and we expect baby delivered within twelve hours of that time point. And for a first-time mom, the average length is probably eight hours. And, you know, second, third, fourth labours tend to be quicker. They could be two, three hours. Mm-hmm. But what the woman will tell you is that she's had contractions for three days. And, you know, they're painful. And she will describe her labour as going on for three days. So we have to keep that in mind as well. And I suppose how tiring that is on your body to have contractions. But it often starts that way, you know, mm-hmm. a few cramps then a few contractions and they come and go, but they do need to be regular every five minutes, lasting mm-hmm. for a minute for at least an hour. We talk about the five one one rule. Yes, 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 absolutely, yeah. But one of the big things I think, sorry, go on, Vicky, go on. I cut across you, go on. No, no, go on, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I had a section because I had twins first. And um, one of the things I and I remember, and I was a bit, a bit horrified with, but the nurses were amazing, was that, there wasn't enough staffing levels in, in the maternity hospital to actually help me feed the babies. And I was having to sit up with, with a scar and it was very painful. And, and a lot of women have said the same to me, you know, that, and, and particularly with COVID because the, the partners weren't allowed in, it, it was very difficult. And, I, you know, I remember one farmer even saying recently that, you know, an animal will get more help. So I just think that this is something that we need to insist on, you know, that it's women do need more help right after having a baby. And this nurses and midwestern are huge pressure, but it is understaffed, isn't it? Just to, to help women afterwards, even from lactating point of view as well. A lot of women would say they'd love more help and it does need to be staffed more, doesn't it? Just to help women. Yeah, I mean we'd certainly love to have more midwives. Um, yeah. 
they are like gold dust. They're amazing. They're amazing. They really are. Yeah. And and our healthcare assistants are fantastic as well. Okay. Um, but I think every maternity in, unit in Ireland is understaffed. Totally. Mm. What the midwives do is absolutely fantastic. And I think mm. one of the things that's been really helpful and, and helpful in COVID as well is the early transfer home. Um, yes. So if you're within the catchment area of the hospital, that you can go home early and have a midwife come out to support you in your mm. own home. Um, Absolutely. I suppose the only downside to that, Vicky, is that the early transfer home, if the mother doesn't have loads of support, isn't really great for her. Do you know what I mean? I, I suppose I'm just thinking that w for government, they need to prioritise for women more care in the hospital before she goes home. Because she, if she's going home to a home that's loads of support, great. But if she's not, it's it's difficult for women, isn't it? And and I often hear you know women say, if it was men having babies there would be loads of, <laughs> of support and there probably would because women generally we don't give out and, and I suppose we're trying to empower women out to have a voice and speak up and that's what we're doing in medicine is, is the fact that females like you and I have come into medicine we are speaking for women and that's wonderful and in, in so doing we're educating and giving them a voice but I do think that's something that we need to look at and that women probably need to to voice it more and that'll help because public pressure is what will lead to more yeah. staffing levels obviously yeah, so, absolutely yeah, so that needs to happen. You've done great work talking about COVID uh, with the, you know, in reassuring people about uh, the risks of COVID pregnancy, Vicky. And, and you've done great work on your Instagram with that, by the way, and well done. Do you want to tell us more about that and, and your views on it? Yeah, I think anytime I post about COVID or it's in my stories. Hmm. Um, it was a huge worry to, to women in particular in pregnancy. It was very good that you were coming out and talking yeah. about it. So I guess I wanted to share the, the facts around COVID infection and what we were seeing on the ground and you know we had lots of very sick mums ending up in ICU which is really unusual for pregnant women uh -huh. um, and then unfortunately with the COVID placentitis we had some stillbirths oh. um, so to get the information out there and then to let women know that the vaccine was protective and that the vaccine is safe oh. um, because there's been a lot of hesitancy around it and absolutely understandably um, yes but we now have good data showing that women who are vaccinated are less likely to end up in hospital. They're less likely to have a preterm delivery because mm -hmm. they're unwell and their babies seem to be protected against placentitis. Mm -hmm. And I think what, if you look at it from the women's perspective, what they want is to do what's best for their baby. So if you can reassure them that the vaccine is best for their baby, then they're happy to go ahead and get it because mm -hmm. they're putting their baby first. Exactly. Um, exactly. I guess even with the booster now, I'm still, I get DMs, I get questions when I do Q&As um, about the booster in terms of trying to conceive, fertility, pregnancy, you know, early pregnancy, close to delivery, postnatally, yeah. and I want to reassure everyone that it's safe at any stage. Totally, but it has interfered with the menstrual cycle. You know, we have had people that have yeah. missed menstruation and obviously that just affects inflammation, causes a temporary inflammation and affects the, the circadian rhythm in the pituitary gland, but it, it does come back to normal and that's the big yeah. thing. And I think yeah. if people are reassured, look, it's temporary. And okay. I think for most women, it's one month to three months that they're seeing it. Yes, and then that's right. To normal. Um, yeah. And then around those that are trying to conceive that they're better to have the vaccine on board for when they get pregnant and then they're protected. Totally, totally. And while we're talking about conceiving, infertility, it's a big problem now for, for women and men, obviously, because let's remember it's 30% men, 30% women, and then the, the other percentage is unknown. But because um, there was a connotation out there, it was all a women's problem, Vicky, and we have to educate women about that. 
But infertility, you know, I suppose as women are getting, you know, leaving it to older to have babies, we're seeing it more, aren't we? Yeah, they'd say, what is it, one in six couples will experience yes. infertility. Yeah. And I mean, I'm 40, so I have lots of friends who are currently on fertility journeys. Yes. Um, and it, it is a tough road. Um, mm. And it is becoming, I guess, more common. Uh-huh. Um, because I suppose the, the right time physically to have a baby is probably in your 20s. But, you know, life gets in the way and absolutely you might not have met the right person or... Oh. Know, you could be focusing on your career and the right time is when you're 35 38 oh, um, yes. and I guess it's that people knowing when to seek help is really important so you know if they're trying for a baby for a year and they're under 35 we want to see them and oh. if they're 35 or more and it's six months or if they've got an underlying condition like PCOS or endometriosis yes yes six months and then you know obviously the first port of call is the GP and then on into secondary care and yes. your gynecologist or fertility specialist so that they can have the test done and look if the tests are normal then they can continue mm. to try but if we pick up something that we can help them with then Absolutely. you know it, it's better to do that sooner Absolutely. I always tell this story. I actually met this woman. She she knocked on the door to, to bring in her 14-year-old daughter to, to, to see me. She had um, been trying and, and uh, not successful. And she came to me as a last resort, Vicky, and she had an underactive thyroid. And she just popped the children out one after the other. So it was just sometimes simple things can be done. But I suppose the big thing that uh, that I see is that we now are getting the message across, Vicky, that it is a male and female problem. You and I would have both seen just women focused on and only laparoscopies done on women and never had a semen sample. The men, you know, that's changing, thankfully. And it's, yeah. it's yeah, and that's good. And we, in the Rotunda, we recently converted what used to be um, the Harry unit into a new purpose-built gynecology building. Right. And in that building, we have a male sampling room and we have a semen analysis lab. And we see the, the two um, uh, members of the couple for the consultation and they both get investigated together um, and get offered treatment. And while we can't currently offer publicly funded IVF, that's something that I'd love to see available. Yes, in the absolutely. I think because everyone has the, is the, is the right to have a little baby if, if they so wish. And I, I think that's something we need to do. No, to- totally agree with you on that. But I suppose the whole thing of, it, of infertility is to take away the, um, everyone would love to have a baby. Not everyone can, but it's to sort of to give them the help at the right time and to stop the pain because people go through terrible pain. We both know couples who have not managed to conceive and, you know, they see it as a big failure. And I suppose it's to try and educate them not to feel that there's certain, you know, medical reasons why they mightn't be able to and so forth. Isn't there, Vicky? Yeah. This, if you take all that guilt away, and that shouldn't be, you know. And I think a lot of the fertility clinics have psychologists as part of their yeah. team, which is really helpful. Brilliant. Um, and then other sort of complementary things like acupuncture, reflexology um, are, are hugely beneficial for couples. Um, and then you have, you know, your same sex couples and women embarking on a pregnancy using donor sperm and to give them access as well. Um, absolutely absolutely and i suppose to talk about the donor eggs and donor sperm because it's one of the choices for 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 women and men if 
for example, a man's sperm isn't you can't use it for whatever reason, or a woman, a woman, for example, can't conceive her eggs are are not um you know good for use, or she's in her forties and has decided I'd rather use a donor egg. You know, it's it's to probably have that a bit out in the open, Vicky, because I, I had one patient recently who wanted it, but her husband was absolutely against it. And I suppose the more we talk about it, it takes that whole uh, sort of you know threat away from it, doesn't it? You know, because yeah. at the end of the day, you're bringing a miracle into the world, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess it is becoming more common um, for women to use donor eggs because we know mm. that the success rates for IVF as you get into your 40s and particularly from 42 onwards mm. will be much higher per cycle yes. with donor egg yes. um, because they're using a donor who's in their 20s. Yes, yeah. And, you know, it's still your baby. You know, you're going to carry exactly. with it over the pregnancy. Um, and I think it's important for, for that to be out there and for people to know that, as you said. Totally. And Vicky, to get rid of the idea of geriatric mum, do you remember Bridget Jones? And she was mm -hmm. like, I hated it. And I think she was only 39 or something. And I thought, where are you going with your geriatric mum? Even to, to have it in the movie, I was furious, you know. know. So, and yeah. 35, you know. Yes. Yeah. The average first time mum now in Ireland is 33. Yeah, absolutely. I would, and I would say even higher, Vicky, sometimes because yeah, it's moving that way for for and obvious reasons. Thirties and forties, you know, they're they're often very healthy and they're well informed and they're at a good point in their life to have a baby. So yeah, yeah I think we, we definitely need to get rid of that term. We need to get rid of that. And the other thing, Vicky, is there's a lot of research showing that men men think they they can you know ha have babies at any uh, time. And and sometimes you you and I both see this where you know a woman is dying to start her family and the man is resisting and saying we've loads of time but mm. but they're now coming out of research saying that over a certain age men's sperm you know there's fragmentation of the dna and that that could cause problems so i suppose men need to be educated as well don't they that, that yeah. there's a certain age when they need to um, yeah. i think they feel the time pressure a little bit less that's probably why <laughs> yes yes but i suppose you know that, that it's been a very chauvinistic society and that wasn't discussed before whereas research is showing that really they should, you know, for up to 45 is ideal, definitely not beyond 50 if possible, because that whole DNA fragmentation of the sperm, that that, that research is quite, uh, you know, it, it, it's very good, isn't it? And yeah. saying that there's a higher instance of mental disease and so forth. So yeah, I think, I think when they look at the fragmentation rates, you know, they'll, mm -hmm. it helps guide who gets IVF, who gets ICSI, who will exactly. without. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. It's very important that people know that as well. I think so. I think so. And for, for men and women to be to be informed. Absolutely. And to take the pressure out of the woman that she feels that she's pushing it with, with age. And Vicky, vasectomies, our rate of vasectomies in Ireland is absolutely dreadful, isn't it? We still, you know, wouldn't you think that when we're empowering women so much that women would would be pushing their, their partner to go for a vasectomy? It, it's, it's dreadful. I'm very glad that there's the option of long-acting contraception for women, the marina yes. coil, the copper coil, yes. um, because it means that they don't have to have a tubal ligation, which yes. it is a surgical procedure that carries yes. risks, way more risks under local anaesthetic. I get so annoyed when I hear people have it, Vicky, because I, we, I see as an endocrinologist women getting, you know, problems with periods, it can bring on menopause as well. I know some of the research doesn't say, bear that out, but I see it clinically. 
And, yeah, um, and I think, you know, if, if it's done as part of a cesarean section and it's part of that operation, yeah, having it separately, you know, as a laparoscopic procedure mm. just for that, when there are other but, options. But, but, but when you think that a man can have a vasectomy and I just think as, as an empowered woman, you have to say, look, I've had my children, I've, I've done the, the, the nine months and all the nine yards. Now it's time for you. And I think if women had self-worth, they would be demanding it really wouldn't they and I suppose that's what we need to get out there as opposed to this thing of, of putting themselves forward all the time and being the being the sort of victim on the you know in, in not really victim that's not the word I want to use but you know constantly putting you know making the sacrifices really I think we have to empower women to sort of say well that's your time now to have the vasectomy and to reassure men that it doesn't do any problem with their virility and, and so forth you know yeah yeah absolutely I mean it's a very straightforward procedure with a quick recovery um yeah it's 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 terrible but you and I both <laughs> both see it all the time women just saying oh no I can't get around him and he won't do it so therefore and it's it's such a shame right one woman says she goes I could tell his mother but I just can't do that because she would definitely make him but I want to have the tubal ligation instead. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. And the thing is that Jerry Ryan did great work on the radio 20 years ago when he came out and told everyone when it wouldn't have been, you know, a, a common thing to say that he had his vasectomy, Lord of Mercy and Jerry Ryan. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Said that, and everyone was talking about it. And, you know, you'd have expected that that uh, it would have opened up the, the floodgates. But unfortunately, no. But that's something we'll have to push uh, and empower women to do. And Vicky, just quickly talk about menopause. Because you have a big interest in menopause, and um, yeah, so I'm definitely seeing more women requesting HRT. Yes, more perimenopausal women. So they might come and see me because their periods have changed, they're heavier or they're more frequent. Um, and then they kind of mention, oh, and I also have noticed some hot flushes, the brain fog, the mood changes, um, and I guess it's a, it's a good opportunity to discuss with them. The pros and cons of HRT and I think the new HRTs we have now are not the ones that are around when you know the studies were published you know mm -hmm. showing risks and that actually if you look at it the breast cancer risk goes from about 24 per thousand to 28 per thousand mm. and if you're drinking a moderate amount of alcohol your risk is actually higher or if your BMI is above 30 your risk is higher. Yes yes how so long would you leave people on HRT for Vicky? So it depends uh, like there's some people that will stay on it forever and they mm -hmm. say Look, I'm never coming off it the benefit for me for my lifestyle and how I feel myself outweighs any risk ever um but lots of women will go on it you know in their mid to late 40s and often it's a coil to control their heavy periods and a patch for their estrogen exactly yeah and they'll stay on it into their mid 50s and then they may, might come off it at that stage mm -hmm. um, for women who started who are postmenopausal. You know, it's often 52, 53, and they might stay on it till the age of 60. Yes. Um, we do, I guess, discuss stopping at 60. And we yes, because of the research is saying to do so, yes. After yes. 60. But, you know, th there are some women that do stay on it. And then there's other options like the vaginal estrogen. Absolutely. Um, there's lots of sexual dysfunction that women don't want to talk about. But I had one woman who came to see me and she said, I love my husband. I can't have sex. And it's a physical thing and oh. you know and she was crying and i thought oh my god i can totally fix this we are going to work through this good 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 yeah, we tried a couple of different prescriptions for yeah. different oh. and creams and things and look she came back and saw me and things she was in a better place and and we found a, a combination of 
um, HRT that worked really well for her. So for women to know that, and I think it's huge, it's huge. And, and I think the fact that we're talking about perimenopause, menopause, and we brought it out into the open, Vicky, has been fantastic because women of the previous generation, it, they didn't talk about it. They, they felt they didn't even want to, hadn't spoken with their mothers about it. A lot of them didn't even know the symptoms. Whereas now, thankfully, everyone is talking menopause, even men are talking menopause. So it's wonderful. Yeah. And I suppose that's very important because, you know, you, at least they know if they've memory problems, brain fog, irritability, as well as all the common things, but there's all the tiredness and fatigue that all goes with it as well. And, and their spouses would be a bit more understanding and the women themselves go for help. Isn't that, isn't that the big thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And just osteoporosis then, that, that that's the thing I find, Vicky, that people aren't really tuned in on enough. They don't seem they don't seem to have got the fact that, you know, once they become menopausal, that osteoporosis is a risk and you you see people not having DEXA scans done and they're sort yeah. of asking you, what is a DEXA scan, which which is yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I have a I have a bit of a checklist when I see people for a menopause consultation. So that's that's on at the DEXA scan. Good girl, good girl, good girl, good girl. Good pressure. Fantastic. And I suppose the, the thing, the one thing about HRT is that it, it has, it did get a lot of bad press, you know, 20 years ago. But I think, as you said, it's very personalised, isn't it? And while the research would say, you know, cut off at 60, it's all about working with the patient. Every patient is different. And some women, their symptoms are so horrendous, they will have to stay on it um, past that. But you'll do regular mammograms and you'll be keeping regular checks on them. And, and that's the key, isn't it, Vicky? So it's personalising it. And I think it's sometimes woman. you have to try more than one HRT combination to find exactly. what works well. And yeah. it's, it can be a little bit frustrating with the supply of the HRT at the moment. Oh, it's yeah. very annoying. Very yeah. annoying. Those are out of stock again, which is yeah. a popular yeah, um, absolutely. brand of HRT. And the fact that it's a patch has huge benefits. Exactly. Um, you know, lower clotting risk and for anyone with kind of any GI problems like Crohn's or exactly it's the safest way to go yeah sometimes you end up changing for that reason or sometimes you change because the dose isn't right or the route isn't right yeah Um, yeah there's a lot of misinformation out about bioidentical hormones isn't there Vicky that that's a bit irritating there's a lot of wrong messaging coming out what do you what do you say when you get asked that yeah like I think there's the studies and you know the safety data is on the prescription HRT that we know and we use and yeah. we're talking to monitor blood levels and exactly there can be some consumerism around that um, oh. but going with what we know is safe and well tested um is, is the way to go yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah absolutely and I suppose that that's the big thing people like you coming out advising what is correct and what, what you should you know what you should take that's the key can I just very quickly Vicky the the whole thing of going back to puberty um, normal periods you know a lot of people don't seem to realize what a normal period is I mean the amount of women that you see that are or even years ago they, they had seven day periods and they thought that was normal you know it's, it's I see girls from the age of like 13 uh, up to women in their 90s so the whole spectrum of Yes, absolutely. Well, you definitely see it. But it's, it's lovely that people like you are coming out and, and informing women about what's normal because then they can go and treat it. And, and, you know, even that whole thing of heavy periods, loads of women, you know, years ago had seven day periods, which should have been treated because it indicated a problem with the circadian rhythm. And obviously, you know, you, you, you were telling them, hang on, it's three to four days. But the amount of people that don't even know what a normal period is, and I suppose it is because there wasn't education. 
of the yeah, bubble. And I suppose we do know with younger girls, like the teenagers, that their periods oh. can be heavier. And um, but a certain percentage of those, like maybe as high as 15%, will have an underlying clotting issue. Exactly. Um, and that they need to be investigated and treated and oh. um, and for and most of them it improves as they get into their 20s it's one of the few things that improves with age <laughs> exactly i suppose the other thing though is that if they are very heavy it can be an indication of endometriosis which can cause infertility uh, yeah. Vicky. so i suppose it's about early intervention isn't it yeah and endometriosis i think has been in the news a lot recently um oh. and there's one in ten women have endometriosis yes it can take up to 10 years to get diagnosed. Um, and that's really important, as you said, in terms of fertility and in terms of their quality of life. You know, if you've got pain that stops you going to school, going to work, oh. um, then, you know, you need to be seen, investigated, treated. Oh. Um, and there's a couple of, uh, I suppose, things that, um, that we're working on where we're looking at multidisciplinary approach to endometriosis okay. care. Um, so some general gynecology, some with a particular special surgical interest in endometriosis. Um, okay. And then the psychological support, the dietetic support. Totally. But the research showing that it's, it's the abnormal circadian rhythm and it's that, you know, over secretion and e even just being put on the pill early can, can be a huge help, isn't it? And it's just to stop that's yeah. really important isn't it and how we use the pill I think has changed in the last two or three years where you know people aren't taking a pill break and that they're told look you don't have to take a pill break and in fact for endometriosis the running the pills back to back is what helps of course if you do take a break taking a four day rather than a seven day break um is better um and that it's not a period you're getting it's a withdrawal bleed so you don't have to have one every month um, mm. and that's and has the research improved in terms of causes of endometriosis, apart from the, the circadian rhythm that I spoke about? Is there any anything else that's come out about the causes of endometriosis? Because no, it's the real cause of infertility. Yeah. It's, it's poorly understood. I guess what has come out is for women that have endometriosis cysts on their ovaries, we know yeah. that by removing those cysts and stripping them off the ovary, that that will reduce their AMH yes. um, and their ovary. And their AMH for people listening is what, Vicky? So their AMH, it's a hormone that's produced by the ovaries that we check as a marker of, I guess, how much time you have left in, in terms of your fertility. So sure. it's fine with age, um, but you don't want it to decline too rapidly because you're remo removing healthy ovarian mm -hmm. tissue. And it can decline as much as 30 to 50% by removing an endometrioma. So, you know, you have to be cautious in someone who's young or thinking of babies or who may be thinking of babies in the future. Future. Very good. And very quickly, Vicky, because uh, you're, you're great to give so much time. Cervical cancer, I know you have a big interest in, in, in uh, colposcopy and you've done a lot of, you were the lead in that, uh, in, in the rotunda. But what's your thing on cervical cancer and how we're doing uh, at the moment and, and this whole smear uptake? So I think the move to primary HPV screening has been fantastic because it's yes. a better test. Mm -hmm. So we know that if you screen a thousand women, they'll pick up 18 abnormalities of 20 that are actually abnormal, whereas the old test only picked up 15. Mm -hmm. So you'll never pick up everyone because it's a screening test. And that's why it's important that women see their doctor if they've got abnormal mm -hmm. bleeding, pain with sex, abnormal discharge. They're the signs of cervical cancer. But what uh -huh. we want to do is catch it at that pre-cancer phase. Uh -huh. um, so having women come every three years between the age of 25 and 29 and every five years from 30 to 65. Uh -huh. And that if you catch it early, 
you're treating that pre-cancer stage and preventing cervical cancer. Which is great. And I suppose, Vicky, with the whole vaccine uptake among the present teenagers for cervical cancer, both in boys and girls, that, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. We should see reductions in cervical cancer with that, shouldn't we? So they, they tell all of us who are doing colposcopy that we won't be needed in a couple of years' time. Yes, which would be wonderful. Which would yeah. be wonderful. Um, yes, yeah. So I think the vaccine uptake is is great for, for girls and now introducing it for, for boys as well. Which I think is fantastic. I really which, do. You know, it benefits them for other cancers that HPV causes, but it also helps prevent HPV transmission to women as well. Exactly. And I think it's good to teach boys about the responsibility of that yeah. at a young age, isn't it? It's, it's a good lesson for them, isn't it? That they also have to be responsible. And the other thing, I guess, around HPV is, you know, it's, it's something that 80% of us have and we'll clear it from our immune system and it Absolutely. can come um, and I'd sometimes have women come into the colposcopy clinic who say, look, I've been married for 20 years. Like, has my husband had an affair? Why do I have HPV? Yes, and yeah. just, it's so important that they know that, you know, HPV has probably been there a long time and it's reactivated. So not to be worried about it and not to think of it as a sexually transmitted infection like chlamydia or gonorrhea, that it's just a virus that we carry. And, and when you get run down, it can often, yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Vicky, you're, you're incredible. We, we've covered everything from periods to, to uh, infertility, to miscarriage, to labor, to, uh, you know, or talking about cesarean sections, going on to premenopause and menopause. Absolutely fantastic. And, and then obviously you, you spoke about COVID as well. You're, you're absolutely brilliant the way you're educating women, Vicky. I think it's so important. Uh, this is coming out at a great time now when we're empowering women. And it's absolutely fantastic. I really think it's so important that that uh, females are educating women, especially you being a consultant gynecologist. It's so important because you're, you know you're the voice, and women then once the knowledge is there, knowledge is key, and then they can they can come and get get the help they need. And we've seen that with the menopause over the last few years. Now that women are enlightened about menopause, they're all coming forward. And the, the horrible stories you and I have heard about women who suffered years ago, and they just didn't know and and a lot of them really suffered uh, and it ruined their lives so it's lovely isn't it Vicky that that uh, someone like you is coming out and empowering women and sharing your knowledge for their benefit so I, I really want to thank you for it and, and thank you for your time well thanks very much you're wonderful and thank you so much Vicky and and we're looking forward to hearing this and this will be going live very shortly and we're going to have it out for International Women's Day so thank you so much you're great thank you